welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And our student ministries exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our whole goal is to come alongside parents and helping their kids follow Jesus Christ. And so what you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached on our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30. And as you listen, I pray that you are encouraged and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we behold Him in His glory. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 32 tonight. But we're going to read some context, which is verse 17 through 32. Ephesians chapter 4. We're in the middle of our series in Ephesians. And so we've looked at Ephesians 1 through 3, which is all about who we are in Christ Jesus. But Paul is now going to teach us how to live in light of that. So if you could stand for the reading of God's word, Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read, I'm going to start in verse 17 to give us some context, all the way to 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you, he's talking to believers, must no longer walk as the unbelievers or Gentiles do, in the vanity or futility of their minds. They... Unbelievers are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the rebellious hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They're just longing for it. But that is not the way you learn Christ, believer. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness in our passage tonight. Therefore, in light of these things, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are neighbor or for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why? And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. Rather, Let him labor, work, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let not the corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the living word of God. You may be seated. Pastor and theologian Sinclair Ferguson, the the Scottish theologian, 
summarized our passage tonight with his title, Become What You Are. Become What You Are. And I don't think there's a better way to summarize this section in the Christian life than that. Christian, who has been saved, become what you are. Live out who you are. And in our study of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has gone to great lengths to demonstrate that if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, that means that fundamentally who you are is that you are united to Jesus Christ. You are in him. That is your identity. And thus, since you're united to him, who is the head of the church, you're thus united to all those who have been saved, which is his body, the church. And chapters one through three, Paul is screaming to you, this is who you are. This is the gospel of what God has done that he has united all things in heaven and earth. The great plan he has brought you to be a part of to unite all things in heaven and earth in Christ Jesus. You were once dead, but now you're alive. You've been united to him. And chapters four through six. Now Paul says, live like it. Become who you are. How? By putting off the old self and putting on the new. The old self is dead. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. So you need to displace your former lifestyle and replace it with things that are consistent with who you really are now in Christ Jesus. And the good news for you this evening, believer, is that Christ has supplied with you every need. He supplied, he supplied for you everything you need in order to do this, in order to obey his commands, in order to do what he has commanded. He has supplied you everything you need. In fact, it's part of the new covenant promises that he will give you a new heart and give you new desires and cause you to walk in his statutes. The gospel is Christ for us, Christ for you on the cross, his life and death for you, but it doesn't stop there. It's also Christ in you. Christ for pardon and now Christ for power. Christ who's imputed righteousness to your account at the moment of justification, now holiness infused by the Holy Spirit to you throughout the Christian life. He supplies everything you need in the gospel. And in our section tonight, Paul exhorts each and every one of us to put off five specific things, to displace those things and then to replace them with five things, okay? And in each of these examples, you will see that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the virtues that he's calling us to in contrast to sinners, which I'm gonna, every point, I'm gonna contrast a specific sinner from the Bible or a group of sinners with Jesus. So, five things that we see in the text become who you are. Number one, become who you are, put away lies, and put on truth. So, every point's gonna go put off something, put away something, and put on something. It's just flowing just from uh, verses 17 through 24. Put away lies and put on truth. Verse 25. Therefore, 
in light of who you are. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members one of another. I grew up in a home that loved me. My parents loved me. And I know that they loved me because they disciplined me. Proverbs talk about those. A father who does not discipline his son hates his son. I know that my parents love me because they disciplined me whenever I broke God's law. And in the stead home, the punishments were always in proportion to the sin that we committed. But for lying, that was the most severe punishment that we got. And whenever we did lie or whenever we told a white lie or a half truth or or cheated or hid the truth or didn't give all of the truth to make ourselves sound good... My mom would say, that is not who you are. In fact, when you lie, you are being like the devil. You're you're emulating Satan. Whoa. That's harsh. That's kind of mean. Well, son, Jesus actually says that. In John 8, 44, to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, And your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. So we have truth and lies because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is the father of lies. And the Bible describes unbelievers as those that are ignorant to the truth. They they hold fast to lies and they discard of the truth. They suppress the truth. But for us believers... Our Father in heaven, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the very source of truth. He is truth. What did Jesus say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Jesus also said in John 8, 31, he said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So believers, why would you not want to speak and live in the truth, the very truth that has set you free? Why would you not want to emulate Christ Jesus? We are to be men and women of the truth, for love rejoices in truth. 1 Corinthians 3, 13, 8. Why is this important? Because Paul says you are members of one another. You are part of the same body. To speak falsehoods essentially is to harm yourself. Theodoret, kind of a weird name, lived in the AD 393. He says this about this passage. He says, it would be extremely perverse since we belong intimately to one another to say things that are not true. For this is not the way the body functions. The eyes, for example, when they see cliffs and steep caverns, instantly report them to the feet so that they may turn aside and protect the whole body from harm. The point is like you're members of your body. Your eyes don't lie to your feet. So why would you lie to one another? Why would you lie to one another? It harms the body of Christ. That's the point. 
Become who you are. Put away devilish lies and put on Christ the truth. Live in the truth. Love sound doctrine. That is the truth. There's so many implications about that. You could talk about it in life group. Number two, become who you are. Put away anger that controls you or controlling anger and put on righteous anger. Put on righteous anger. Verse 26, be angry. You're commanded to be angry, believer. (laughs) And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Paul is quoting Psalm 4, 4. It says, be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. But then in Psalm 37, 8, it says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. So which is it? Am I to be angry or am I to forsake anger? What is he talking about? Well, in the passage, there's two different types of words that are used for anger. And the first one has to do with this. When he says be angry, that is, he's talking about an abiding, settled attitude of righteous indignation against sin and sinful things. That is commanded together with appropriate actions when conditions make them necessary. In other words, anger is a right emotion when it is angry about things that you should be angry about, namely sin and sinful things. It would be weird, believer, if you didn't get angry about abortion. Right? It would be, ang- it would be weird, believer, if you didn't get angry about murder, about racism, about transgenderism, or the LGBTQ agenda. Why? Because it's destroying lives. It's built on a lie, and we're called to rejoice in the truth, to put away falsehoods. It would be weird if you saw someone in sin and didn't feel anything towards it. Be angry and do not sin. But it says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. It's a different word that's used. And that is anger that is mingled with irritation and exasperation and embitterment. That kind of anger is forbidden. And we see the difference in two different types of people. Jesus, who is angry when Lazarus died. He was angry at the effects of sin and pain in the world. He had righteous anger towards the Pharisees who would heap up heavy burdens on people. He was angry when he saw the temple being used as a place of trade and business rather than prayer. He made a a cord of whips and drove people out of it. Tender Jesus, gentle and lowly in heart, driving away people out of the temple. In contrast... Yeah, he was never with he was without sin. In contrast to Cain. Cain, when the Lord regarded Abel's sacrifice in Genesis 4, the Lord said, So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must master it, rule over it. But that anger was not based on righteous things. It was an anger that festered, that caused him bitterness, that, caught, that, that festered in him, and it gave opportunity to the devil to then take out his brother, and he murdered his brother Abel. See, when anger festers, it is like an infected wound, and your anger is like 
pouring more dirt and slime into it. It makes it worse until your anger controls you. It masters you. You become drunk with anger. Some of you know this. You come from broken homes. You've had fathers who lose control. They have no self-control. This is the anger that we're called to put off. To not be like Cain. Why? Because it gives an opportunity for the devil to use it. Be angry and do not sin. Some of you, you struggle with anger. When things don't go your way, you blow up. Repent. That is not who you are. Right? Become who you are. Put away Cain-like controlling anger and put on Christ-like righteous anger. Three, become who you are. Put away laziness theft, and put on honest work. Put on honest work. Put away laziness or slash theft. Put on honest work. I don't think many of you are thieves in the traditional sense, but I think laziness is tied here. Verse 28, what does Paul tell us? This is so interesting. He's talking to believers. He says, let the thief no longer let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor let him work see you get a good picture of how Paul and the Holy Spirit view work instead of thieving instead of stealing let him do honest work with his own hands why what's the purpose of work so that he or she may have something to share with anyone in need what a picture of repentance, by the way. This is the new life in Christ. Once given to law-breaking, right? To sin, to thievery, to stealing. Now, working hard. Why? To be generous. Radical generosity. This verse deserves a whole sermon in and of itself. For believers are to be the hardest working and the most honest working people in society. It is absolutely shameful to the testimony and witness of Christ when believers are lazy. It does not send a good picture of who we are in Christ Jesus. Jesus was a carpenter. He worked a blue-collar job. He was a hard worker, so much so he went all the way to the cross until it was finished. We are to be the honest, most honest working people in society that is riddled with absolute laziness and theft. And, and men, young men, this, this has got to be, you, you have to have an instilled work ethic given by the Holy Spirit. And same with you women. It's true of you. Who's an example of a thief? In John 12, Mary is worshiping Jesus. She's she's anointing Jesus with expensive ointment and perfume. She's worshiping him, preparing him for burial. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, John 12, 4, I'm reading, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And this is what the Holy Spirit says about Judas. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, the thing about thieves is that they steal because they're idle. They are lazy. They take what they do not earn. It's part of the problem. 
They're controlled by their own lust and their craving. They want it so badly, they're, they're, they're willing to sin and break the law to get it. Proverbs 21, 25 says this, The desire, the lust of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves and he craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. Believer, this is who you are. For unlike Judas, right? This is amazing about the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the ultimate example of radical generosity and sacrificial generosity, who did not come to take but came to give, give what? All the riches of his life to your account. The gospel is the paradigm for our motivation for hard work because we have been saved. We don't work to earn salvation, but we have been saved. Therefore, we work. Emulate Christ. Become who you are. Men, keep away from the lazy sluggard in your friend group. They will bring you down. Same with you women. Run from them. Read the Proverbs on the sluggard. They will bring your soul to Sheol. Stealing, the one who steals time from the company. When you clock in at a certain time that you actually didn't start working at, or you take longer breaks, or, or maybe you don't give back what you owe to the lender. You promise to give something, but you never come through with your promises. You steal test answers. You don't actually do the work to study, so you cheat. You take, rather than making an honest living. For what purpose? Why work hard? What's the point of a career? What's the point of making money? so that you may have something to give, share with anyone in need. Even those of you, you're like, I don't have a job, but why are you in school? Is literally the purpose just to fill yourself up with knowledge? Is it just a selfish gain of knowledge for you? What's the point of your learning? Why am I in seminary? Why am I taking classes? It's to benefit society. It's to benefit the people around me. You got to have a bigger vision than just yourself when it comes to your schoolwork, your classwork, or your work. You got to think outside that the purpose that God has given you skills to work hard is to benefit others, to be a better teammate, to learn so that you have knowledge to give to those that don't have knowledge. You, you're strong so you, you could help the weak, you're rich so you could help the poor. Any strength that God gives you is to help those that do not have. It's others-minded. Isn't that what Christ did? He said it's better to give than receive. Put away Judas-like theft and put on work and generosity, just as Christ did. Become who you are. Number four, believer, become who you are. Remember, we're not doing these things to be saved. We are saved. (laughs) Point number four, become who you are. Put away rotten speech and put on gracious speech. <laughs> These commands hit to the heart. But it's good news that the, I remember, the Lord supplies you everything you need to live this out in the Holy Spirit. Put away rotten speech. Look at verse 29. What does it say? Let no corrupting, corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Why? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Jesus said in Matthew 12, 33, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the word corruption here, I love it. You've got to circle it. The word corruption gives some great word pictures. You should be thinking about things that are rotten, things that are decaying, things that are defiled. And they're not just defiled within themselves, but they defile things around you. That is what it means to corrupt. For example, in Lake Chelan, Washington, it's a, it's a lake that I go on vacation every single year to. It's a beautiful lake. You can see 50 feet down. It's crystal clear. And it's got some of the best trout fishing that you could do. I love trout fishing. They're clean fish. They're great to eat. They're fun to catch. They're a sporting fish. It's awesome. But sadly, years ago, a species of fish was illegally introduced to the lake that has been killing off the trout. They eat all the good fish. And these fish are called squawfish. They are green. They are slimy. They are ugly. When you catch them, they go limp. They don't even fight. I hate catching them. They've defiled the lake. And whenever me and Luke Dirks, as a young, as young boy, even to this day, me and my brothers, whenever we catch them, we take them off the hook and we throw them onto the bank. We, we put off. We throw them out. Because they were introduced illegally, they're gross fish and they destroy, they defile the lake. It's interesting because Jesus uses the same example of fish in Matthew 33 to describe this idea of corruption. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and they sat down and they sorted the good into containers, but they threw away the corrupt, the bad. Rotten speech defiles the church. Gossip, slander, crude joking, sexual joking, biting sarcasm, passive aggressive comments, harsh words. When we speak with such, such corruption, we are not being like our Savior, right? In fact, we're just like false teachers. In 2 Peter 2.19, Peter describes false teachers as those who are slaves of corruption. They speak corrupt words. They corrupt the church. They corrupt souls. Believer, that is not who you are. How does Christ speak to us? What is his speech like? You know, it's interesting that the only people he's pretty harsh with are those who know it all. They're the Pharisees. They're the religious Pharisees. But other than that, his words are gracious. They are kind. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He gives truth when people need it. He listened and weeps with those who weeps. His words build faith in others. And that's what the verse tells us to do, right? It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up. Christ always built up faith in others and he tore down the self-righteous. Do your words build faith in others? Do they build people up in Christ or do they tear people down? Are you a hammer all the time with your words? Sometimes the hammer hits the nail on the head and you need a hammer. But a lot of the times it's tender Speech, it's gracious speech that builds up. 
What about at home with your parents, with those you're closest to, and your siblings? What is your speech characterized by? Gracious speech or corrupting speech? Believers, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He is grieved when you use corrupting talk. That's what it says. The one whom you are sealed for the day of redemption grieves over your rotten, embittered, angry, immoral talk that comes out of the heart. You grieve the, the God of the universe. He is not pleased. Why? Because you're not living according to who you are. You're more like the false teachers, enemies of Christ. But that's not you, believer. That's not who you are. You're the very opposite. You were saved by the gracious speech of Jesus Christ. He said, come to me, all who are sinners, who are weary, who are heavy laden. His speech was so kind to you. It's the gracious speech of the gospel, the good news. How then could our mouths pour forth such corruption? Become who you are. And number five, put away hostility and put on kindness. Put away hostility, put on kindness. Let all bitterness, verse 31, and wrath, and bitterness is the seed of anger, and wrath, and anger, and clamor. Clamor is the outburst of anger, and slander, the stewing of anger, you're slandering people. Put away, these things must be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another. I love this word, tender-hearted, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See how Paul just anchors it in the gospel? (laughs) The Pharisees were filled with bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander. They hated Christ because he challenged their self-reliance. He said, only sinners are worthy of salvation. Their self-righteousness produced a cynicism towards those they were supposed to love. Those they were supposed to build faith in, they tore down. Those they were supposed to pray for, they defiled. They, they, they derided. Thank the Lord. God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here, Luke 18. But Christ, who had every reason to be rightfully angry with each and every one of you, how did he treat you in your sin? For while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He's gentle and lowly in heart. Just as he was tenderhearted towards you, sinner, just as he forgave you, you are likewise to do the same. Not to earn salvation, but because you are saved again. I hope that's redundant. Because this isn't legalism. This is holiness. This is living out who we are. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the motivator and the great tenderizer of our hearts to obey. So some of you, you're like, man, I want to do all these things, but I have no affections. I feel affectionless. My heart just isn't in it. I wish it was. You know, I think of frozen meat and, and the tenderizer. You know, you're trying to tenderize it, right? You're like, some, some of us are like, okay, I got to go do these things to tenderize my heart. I got to go to the law. But what tenderizes the heart is the gospel. It's the... It's the massaging out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How how can our icy hearts be melted? Richard Sibbs, 
English Puritan, he says this, tenderness of heart comes by an apprehension of the tenderness and love found in Christ. A soft heart is made soft by the blood of Christ. I am sure nothing will melt the hard heart of man but the blood of Christ, the passion of our blessed Savior. Think about this, student. When a man considers the love of God, what love of God has showed us in sending his son and doing the great things that he had done and giving of Christ to satisfy his justice and setting us free from hell, Satan, and death, when we consider this, when we meditate on this, with the persuasion that we have interest in the same, the gospel begins to melt the heart and makes it tender. The key to our obedience is Christ. He is the answer. He is what each and every one of us need, especially those in here who know that you put on a front and your life is characterized by falsehood, by lies, by anger, by laziness, by clamor, slander, gossip, corrupting speech. If that is you, the reason why you cannot emulate Christ is because you don't have him. You're a sinner. You love your sin. Your heart needs to be radically changed. There's no... There's nothing that you can do about it. You don't have Jesus. You're hostile to him. You love your sin and you hate God. And what you need to do is to repent. The only way transformation comes is by looking to Jesus, repenting of your sin and trusting in him. Trusting in him to save you. He is the means of your salvation and transformation. He alone has the power to save you and change you. Evidence. Laura Perry Smaltz, the video that we watched. She writes this, and I'm going to end with this. Because it demonstrates to us the power of the gospel, but then also demonstrates to you, believer, what it looks like to live the Christian life. She says, I was a former transgender, having lived it for almost nine years. I underwent years of cross-sex hormone therapy, major gender-affirming surgeries, she had her breasts remove a double mastectomy. All the legal changes she had to her name, her social security. She writes, I spent nearly 20 years of abject, intentional rebellion against God. Nearly nine years of which I lived as a transgender. I hated God. I hated my family. I hated the person I was. It wouldn't be true, though, to say that I hated myself. I loved myself, probably to the point of narcissism. I worshiped at the altar of self. I hated the person that God created me to be. Instead, I loved the version of myself that I had created. And the Lord started to open up her eyes through, through her mom and through different means. And she started to realize her sin. She said, what had promised to be freedom had become my prison cell. Don't buy the lies. Live in the truth, right? The lies of our culture. What, what had promised to be freedom had become my prison cell, and I soon became enslaved to the need for affirmation. I was wearing clothes that never fit right, injecting myself over and over again with needles, hormones, not recreational drugs. I was wearing prosthetics that were a constant reminder of how fake it all was. As the years went by, 
Jesus gently drew me back toward him. I tried to erase the existence of Laura, but Jesus never let me forget who I was. How did Jesus do this? Who did he use? My mom refused to call me Jake. Her mom would not fall prey to the lie to affirm her lies. And she says this, at the time this made me angry, yet her stubborn insistence on calling me Laura was a tether to reality for me and it became my lifeline. And she'd always say, mom, why are you calling me that? Why won't you call me by my new identity? And she says, because that is not who you are. Amazing testimony. And she says this, the Lord began to work on her. And save her. And she says this about Christ. She says, I was willing to do absolutely anything to be free. I was finally desperate enough. Jesus gave me a vision of himself getting down on one knee. He reached into the pit with his arm outstretched toward me and said, do you trust me? I knew he was asking me to leave everything and to follow him in faith. I said I did. And I walked away from everything. I put off everything I had known. My job, my partner of almost nine years, my financial security, and my entire identity to follow Christ. I put it all off. Why? That I may gain Christ and be found in him. She started to live according to who she was. Believer, look to Christ. Become who you are by faith alone. Faith alone. This is the power of the gospel, the power that is at work in you, believer, and the power that some of you need. Cry out to him. Lord, be merciful, the sinner. Say that, pray that, and you will be transformed from death to life.